0: Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. On this episode, we talk with Marianne Lavasseur. is a change agent, a patient and family partner on various research projects, and an advocate for including the family voice in health system reform. Today, we're going to hear the intimate details of the story of her caring for her son, Tyler, who lived with a mental illness, and chat about whether The Waiting Room Revolution skills could potentially apply to mental health. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The waiting room revolution starts right now. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start with telling us your personal story of how you got into this world of caregiving and wanting to be a, a caregiver advocate.
2: Thank you so much, Sian, and thank you, Sammy, for having me today. And I'll tell you a little bit um, about myself. So I was uh, in the year 2000, 2001, my son, who was uh, my only son, who was doing very well in school up until the uh, uh, secondary three or grade, I guess, nine. He started to experience a little bit of, uh, um, um, you know, Non motivation, his grades started dropping off and he started spending more time at home and he didn't want to go out with friends so much and, and um, I just felt like he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't doing so great. And um, when he turned 16 when he was about 16 years old in 2001, uh, I took him to the family doctor because I wasn't having any, uh, you know, success in convincing him to do more or to do his work or to, you know, come out of his room and um and so we went to the family doctor and uh basically the family doctor said well you know it looks like you're having a bit of a motivational problem you know um maybe you're you know smoking marijuana with your friends after school is not helping uh so uh you know you need to knock that off a little bit i'm going to give you an antidepressant to help you out a little bit and um so he he gave the antidepressant to my son uh, without a follow up appointment, and at that time I said, okay, well we'll we'll try this antidepressant. And from 2002 to 2007, we went through a lot of different. We we, we jumped through a lot of different hoops, um, you know, from school counselors to private psychologists. I took him to the community clinic because of his, you know, he was continuing to smoking marijuana, continuing to smoke marijuana. And I, I thought that wasn't helpful. I, I said, you know, it's one thing to, to you know, smoke uh, a joint at a party because everyone's doing it, but it's another thing to start doing it every day. I don't think that's right. So we went to see a social worker. And then at the end of, uh, at, almost at the end of uh, grade 11, which was his last year of high school, he dropped out of school. And uh, at the same time, he sort of lost track of his friends. He wasn't playing sports anymore, he was a very avid sports player he played a lot of different sports. He wasn't so happy anymore he looked he looked depressed. Um, He and and I thought that he was going through some kind of teenage angst and I said listen, you can't just lie around here all day. You don't want to go to school. Uh, you're going to have to get a job and and do something else. You're going to have to continue forward, and and you'll go back to school later. But you have to you have to continue forward. So he 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 listened to me. Got a part time job here and there, and finally he found a full time job. He he got himself into Tim Hortons as a you know bus boy, and ended up as the baker, a full time position with benefits and everything. And and he seemed okay doing that. And I said okay, that's what he wants to do right now. I'm gonna you know step back and um and so we we did all so but he still there, there were changes with him that um uh, I, I didn't know how to deal with and i i really consulted a lot of different people in in the community in the healthcare community and i wasn't getting any answers i had no idea what was coming and i have to say that here we are in 2007 it seemed like healthcare professionals had no ideas either it wasn't only, uh, it wasn't only me. Uh, so they didn't, they didn't offer me anything uh, different either. I, I have a uh, sneaky suspicion.
1: Yes. What you, where you're going.
2: You know where I'm going?
1: Schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah.
2: So from 2007 to 2010, uh, you know, the anxiety increased, the lack of motivation, isolation, panic attacks, you know, he was really not doing well. And, uh, and around 2007, he had, uh, he, he had some suicidal thinking, he, uh, you know, he was still taking the antidepressants, uh, on and off, I guess, Uh, I tried to, because they did help in a certain way. And so um, I took him to the emergency department, uh, uh, the first time for uh, for suicidal thinking and uh, what i thought was going to be a suicide attempt he explained to me what he wanted to do so i took him to the douglas i was beside myself but i was trying to act very very you know objective and supportive and i was an, a single parent at that time and and really trying to just you know help him through what he, whatever he needed uh, we get to the mental health institute But I have to say that the mental health care system in Canada across provinces and territories is still quite chaotic. We're never sure really. We're never sure really uh, what we're going to get it's I don't think that uh, I think there are a lot of good programs in in a lot in a lot of places, but I don't think we have a standard kind of way of dealing with serious mental illness. Okay, and this is. this is being in the dark in your journey. This is being in the dark in your journey. And and, um, so, you know, this was the, and it's the first time I experienced the waiting room for real. I never stopped at the waiting room. I'm I'm um, you know, a person who who will ask questions and who will expect answers. and, And my son is my son, whether he's 16 or 18 or 20, still my son. And he's my child, and when I was told to wait in the waiting room and that, um, you know, it's all about confidentiality and, and uh, dealing with the, the client and not the family to, in order to, uh, um, you know, to go forward, I felt very, very um, alienated. Now that a lot of that has changed today, let's let's face it. We're in 2021. There have been changes. People are working very difficult, very uh, very hard on, on, on making those changes. And I'll get to that later about what, what actually happened with me. So we we did all this uh, running around still. Um, so I waited in the waiting room, and then he 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 was he was admitted to uh, he was able to get a psychiatrist. I I I pushed for him to have a psychiatrist, and then eventually by 2009, uh, I was able to get him into a long-term rehab program, which he went he which he did, and he succeeded at. He came out of there in 2010, and he was very proud of himself that he had finally sort of kicked the habit.
0: Sounds like he was doing well for a time. Then what happened?
2: And then in 2010 to 2012, uh, we I. I was very now in more in much more involved with his health care uh, and mental health care and I, tr- I started to look at all the things I needed to know in order to help him best I was still alone in doing this and um, fortunately for me my son uh, liked talking to me he told me everything there were no holes barred and um But the things he was telling me were not enough for me to understand everything that was going on with him. I had no clue still, I still felt that he was here because he was depressed and anxious. And that um, and that uh, uh, they were going to help him and I needed to bust my way in to get information so I could help him too. And then in 2011, he was admitted to hospital, he was suicidal once again. And, uh, and then they, they after he stayed in hospital for a couple of months, they transitioned him into an on-campus uh, residence where he could start to, uh, you know, uh, transition back into the community. At the same time, in at the end of 2011-2012, uh, the, the director of the uh, pet program asked parents if they wanted to get together to... Uh, to talk about their uh, experiences and share knowledge and share information. And about 20 of us agreed that we wanted to get together, and they allowed us to use uh, room on the premises.
0: So for our listeners, the PEP program stands for the Program for Early Intervention and Prevention of Psychosis. It's a program geared toward youth who had their first episode of psychosis to recover from that episode using evidence-based treatments like medication, cognitive behavior therapy, et cetera. Sorry, Marianne, please go on.
2: And so someone asked you know, if there would be a facilitator for these meetings. I raised my hand because I had facilitation uh, experience and I never went back. I never turned back. So I started facilitating what, was fa- what were family peer support uh, group uh, meetings. I didn't know they were family. I just thought we were all talking together and I started to learn more. I, I was the first family peer support worker in Montreal at that time, in 2012. And after about three or four months, I went to the director and said, "This is not a volunteer job. This is a uh, this is a full t- this is a full time job." So, um, so here I was doing uh, family peer support, and I went back to them and 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 I and I wrote up a proposal, and they found a grant for me. So I became a family peer support worker at the uh, PEP program in the Douglas hospital in 2012. And then, uh, also in 2012, at the end of 2012, my, they, they started giving my son or clozapine and and to me and to him, it was a miracle medication. It really was a miracle medication. He completely, uh, he, there was such a transformation, his behavior changed, his thinking changed, he became more clear thing. He had more clear thinking. He, he, um, he, he. He was also at that time accepted into an extended version of the first episode psychosis program so that was very supportive for him and I requested more comprehensive healthcare support like a, um, a case manager to, to help him like to meet with him at least once a week quit smoking uh, marijuana he quit out he changed his diet he went back to school, and was starting wanted to go into um, uh, electrical, uh, you know to do science for to, to in electricity. So, uh, that's what he was doing.
0: So Marianne, like so many diseases, you know, there are high points and low points throughout the journey. So at that point in time, it sounds like you were in a high point with Tyler.
2: Now you have to remember all of this time for, so from 2001 to 2014 for 13 years, I ran around and Tyler ran around. We both ran around together and we tried our best to help him recover because I was never told otherwise. In 2014, uh, he was doing well, but then everyone saw that he was doing well, so everyone backed off, including me. I didn't know, I said, oh, wow, he's doing well now. He's in school, he's he's uh, doing volunteer work, he's doing very well, go for it, okay? Uh, and we've got to remember that in 2014, he was um, uh, 29 years old, 28 years old, so, you know, let's go. Uh, but um, when they we so everybody dropped the ball and uh, and they dropped the ball, you know. But there were no community services to support him. There was no peer support to support him. He did. He wasn't part of the first episode psychosis program anymore. So what did he do? He fell off the rails. He he went back to doing what he was doing before, and um, you know he started not complying with medication. He didn't think the medication was helping him anymore. And in 2017, he had a serious relapse. He was found on the street by police. We were searching high and low for him, and he, the police found him. Thank goodness! And he was brought back to the hospital. Uh, in 2017, it, he was he was really he had really deteriorated, and he stayed in the hospital for almost two years. He had a lot of depression and anxiety. He finally attained some stability in 2019. So he was transferred to a supervised how community housing. And I was very hopeful about this and he was too. We were really trying, you know, he did have some cognitive deficits at this point, you know, in um, 2019, he was, uh, you know, uh, 34 years old. And, um, and, but he was hopeful. And then in March, uh, uh, he, he um, was admitted to hospital like a few days after his 35th birthday. Uh, in fact, the last time I saw him was on March 14th, on his birthday. We we had a little birthday celebration. He um, he went into the hospital at, and actually met a girl there, and he was very excited. He couldn't wait to get out of the hospital, but they locked the hospital down, and that was that was COVID lockdown. And not only did they lock the hospital down, they wouldn't let me in to see him. I was barred for I was all. all I was a family peer support worker for nine years at that hospital. I was a very active, during this time, I have to say, you know, from 2012 to 2020, I, I was no, I was not only a family peer support worker, I became a peer researcher. The, the clinic people asked me to be on research projects and family intervention and family peer support. I was on a, a national um, research program for uh, Access Open Minds, which is a Uh, which started integrated youth service, uh, uh, you know, projects, which have since developed. I was I was the coordinator for the family stakeholder for five years in that project.
0: Wow, it's mind blowing. I mean, you had dedicated so much time to being a patient family peer supporter, helping them do patient oriented research and being a patient leader. And yet you were still totally locked out. I mean, we talk in the Waiting Room Revolution podcast about invite yourself and finding the strength to find your voice and use your voice. But that wasn't the issue here. I mean, it was just COVID. Um, it was the reaction to that. And it's so sad to realize how essential patient partners were treated and locked out.
2: We talk about a waiting room revolution, you know. Been able, I don't think the waiting room revolution has been able to to totally break down the doors of mental health institutes and mental health hospitals. There's a lot of ambivalence with regard to what kind of treatments need to be used, especially for serious mental health problems. You know, thank goodness there are great programs for people who may suffer from anxiety and depression and who are able to overcome with good treatment and uh, their own uh, resilience and insight uh, their mental health problems and are able to transition back to their lives and school and, and jobs. But there's a considerable, I think there is a considerable number of people in the population, young people between the ages of 20 and 34, even younger, who, who end up with serious mental health problems, who don't have the necessary supports to recover and live in community with the support they need to live in community. So there's still we're still sitting in the waiting room in that waiting room. This is, you know, my son tried valiantly to to overcome a, a problem. He didn't have the tools with which she needed to to overcome that problem. And it's no one person, healthcare care provider, uh, uh, you know, social worker or, or, or any other person's fault. It's not one person's fault. It's not because of this. It's not because of that. It's, it's because we don't have a, a, a health care system that is focused on the relational, the social determinants of mental health that will help people accept who they are, live as they are, and be supported in community as they are. I worked in the dark, actually, up until... <laughs> up until the end uh, when my son passed away in, on June 25th, 2020, I was still, and I think he was too, still hopeful that, oh, we would both overcome this problem.
0: So I think I hear you saying you're not sure if the waiting room revolution keys apply to mental health.
2: But when we look at, when you look at the keys, uh, when you talk about the waiting room revolution and you and you look at those those seven keys, I found them difficult to apply in a mental health scenario in a mental health system scenario. They may work better in physical health, you know, um, because um, but but in mental health, I I just find that in as much as I didn't know enough about how to help him, I felt that healthcare providers also didn't know enough about how to help him. Okay, and and he's not the only one. There are uh, many young people with chronic mental health problems who are not served well, who are instead incarcerated in in mental health hospitals with very little um, stimulation that will help them to accept themselves because there's a lot of stigma, and to build resilience, and to um, be able to transition back into a community where they will feel supported and continue to receive that support. It's very, right now, that kind of support, I find, is not smooth all the way through. It's not that kind of support isn't there up until you know, they don't need it anymore. It could be years.
1: Well, I have lots of questions for you. Okay. Karen, and, and, you know, I'm just listening to the story, uh, feeling myself frustrated when you go through the years of the unknown, really the mystery of it all. And it's a story of love when you really look, you know, between the lines, um, love between uh, a mother and a son. For sure. And that's very clear in your story. And I think that's not what you talk about. But that's what the meaning of your story really is. It is about how much you love your son. You know, I'm wondering, after years of trying to figure out what was going on. And I mean, with all due respect, when you did finally get some sense of a diagnosis, right? Even though it wasn't what you wanted to hear. Right. Do you feel that it provided some relief at all?
2: No, it provided me with a direction. So when I finally got a diagnosis, I said, okay, I have an answer now. Let's tackle it from there. Okay. What I didn't receive. What, what I didn't receive with that diagnosis was information was instruction was uh, to be prepared. You talk about Instead of being reactive, be prepared. I, nobody prepared me for the detrimental effects of schizophrenia. Nobody said to me his lifespan could be shortened for XYZ reasons. Nobody told me about cognitive deficits in that sense.
1: And, and this is what was going to be my next question, because it sounds like getting a diagnosis um, allowed you to land somewhere somewhere. Yes, It was an anchor in a way, but then you were still not offered the big picture or the long view of a life of schizophrenia, that you were caught up in the weeds and the whirlwind of treatments and facilities right. and transitions in many ways. But you really never felt like you had this overarching Understanding of how schizophrenia was going to impact Tyler and his life, and how it was going to impact you and your relationship together. Because where you may say that the waiting room revolution, seven keys don't um, map perfectly onto an a illness like a primary mental health illness, I see huge overlap because when I think about schizophrenia, I'm thinking of it just like pick an illness, like an ALS or um, congestive heart failure. It is an illness that has a known pattern to it. It has a, a, a rhythm and it has a beginning, a middle and an advanced stage. It has milestones And it has classic features and, you know, there's a rhythm to the treatments and what treatments are offered. And when they are, um, you know, when they don't work, what's the next thing we try, then the next thing we try and what are the types of the types of things that families go through with someone with schizophrenia, Tyler went through schizophrenia with you, Marianne, in your very individual, u- unique way. But billions of people have had schizophrenia. And what I'm frustrated about is that you were lacking that roadmap. Um, and this is what we say for other illnesses. Uh, and the meaning of having schizophrenia, you were given a label, and you were told about treatments and clozapine and all these other things and CBT and, different housing um, opportunities, but you weren't ever offered the meaning, connecting the dots.
2: No, and, and, and it's, it's, um, it's almost like living in a parallel universe because I was facilitating family peer support meetings and listening to the same stories, right? From other family members yeah. and walking them through steps that they could take to help themselves, to, have, to build resilience, to take it one step at a time to uh, to question treatment, to, you know, to advocate, all these things, all these, this processing was happening. These processes were taking place. These steps were being taken. But I, like a lot of other family members, most of them who, and I saw over 200 people in the time I worked there. we, I even, we did analysis on it and so on. All these people, one thing we did not have inside information on, and or insight, in a sense, was the acceptance of the fact that in all probability, if we were sitting there after two years, or three years, or four years with each other, that this was going to be a chronic life condition, Mm -hmm. that life expectancy could be lowered. Yeah, medication has serious toxic side effects yeah that uh, you know these very important you know confrontational life uh, situations that we needed to be told about
1: but not only that that it is waxing and waning and remitting and that it is there are statistics on um, what happens when someone is feeling good when they're on medication, and the likelihood of thinking you can go off the medication, exactly. and then having um, a relapse, and then here we go again? It is like I'm saying, heart failure or COPD. Again different illness, but this seesawing effect that we know happens, you don't escape it, it, it it's part of the typical journey. I agree with you Sammy. Uh, I, I just
2: want to say though, I agree with what you're saying, uh, and when we make the analogy with other, uh, in the comparison with other uh, illnesses that there, there are certain, you know, there's a certain uh, direction and there's a certain kind of pattern that, that, that occurs with each different illness. What is different? The the comparison can't be perfect, though, because what is different uh, with uh, serious mental illness and uh, other illnesses that have other patterns is Mm -hmm. that the person we're dealing with uh, who has the mental illness often Mm -hmm. doesn't have insight into his own illness. He might even he or she might even think they don't have an illness and so they they they
1: buck against it right they that's part of the pattern though see this is what it's part of the pattern the pattern it is not you are right i would i absolutely agree with you we can we can i'm drawing a parallel but they are different but what i'm saying is it's just as deserving as like one of these other illnesses to um be mapped out for people it should be Part of the mapping, by the way, family of someone with schizophrenia, the person with schizophrenia often doesn't realize how big their problem is, especially when they're not doing well. And so again, but that's important for families to know. This, these, So all of the things that you're saying um, you know, are things that would probably be helpful to give another family a heads up about. And this is what Sienna and I get so upset about it's like you shouldn't feel you're the first person to go through schizophrenia the people coming to the to the peer group shouldn't feel that they're the first people there's a lot that can help people see the, the big picture in the long view even though it might not be what they want to hear It's still information it's better than being in the dark and information is multi-dimensional right yeah. And-
2: not only about information about the illness it's information about healthcare it's information about resources or lack of resources it's information about how do i deal with 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 this healthcare provider or how do i deal with my yeah. financial situation or how do i you know uh, so it's it's dimensional and mm-hmm. um, and it's complex it's a lifetime it, it and it it goes way deeper than than we could ever touch upon in in one hour Yeah, uh, for sure. it, it's, it's, it's even, I would say, probably like uh, many other illnesses, it's worthy of its own, its own series uh, because yes. of the lack of understanding. Even yeah. today in 2021, here I am, 21 years later, 20 years later, and even though there have been some advances, they're kind of band-aid solutions. They're kind of like, a, we'll, we'll patch it up here to stop the dam from from uh, exploding, or we'll 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 go over here and we'll we'll shore this up. But we're not stepping back and and looking at how we can uh, how we can uh, treat uh, serious mental health problems in an in a way that is. Um, uh, is more, um, uh, that, that is more helpful holistic. to, yeah. yeah, holistic or helpful to not only the patient, but their family.
0: See, I think you're talking about some of our keys here, like tag your where you are pointing out how fragmented the mental health system is, and also the ripple effect and the incredible toll and impact all of this has had on the family or the primary caregiver, which was you not just the patient.
2: In the last year of Tyler's life, uh, from when, well, when he went into the hospital the last time in 2017, it was a terrible 2017 to 2020. We're really terrible in another way. And that is, it was like having water run through my hands. I couldn't stop the water from running through my hands. He was just deteriorating. And there was no help even on the unit. I felt like you know, I had to fight my way through, even after I knew these people for, for many, many years. I, I, I wasn't yet part of the team. I wasn't able to help out in ways that I knew I could help. And t- because Tyler listened to me 150%. And, and um, in the last year, so, so in the last year, I really, you know, was running around like a chicken. And, and when, so he died in June, 2020, From June 2020 until now, so 18, approximately 18 months later, I've developed all sorts of health issues, physical health issues that I didn't have before, or maybe I I was just pushing them off because I didn't have time to deal with them. But I think stress of of living in that situation, you know, I quit my job, a full-time corporate job downtown to take care of my son full time. And I insinuated myself into a hospital and created a job for myself so that Mm -hmm. I can be there, learn the most, help him, help others be on top of it. And it was still like swimming in the dark. It was like being in the dark, you know, anyway.
0: So can I come, I was, um, I just wanted to close the story because this, um, You talked about you know obviously march 15th and the in the lockdown and what to what you feel comfortable sharing but what does what was that like to be you know you were trying to fight your way in but it sounds like you were never able to get in even
2: right so what were those
0: last few months like
2: Yeah. yeah so the last three months uh well uh march april May, june yeah the last three months um Uh, the the hospitals locked down and so everybody thought immediately it was temporary and it made sense of course we had to get organized no one knew what getting organized with COVID was going to be like we didn't know it was going to take a year to get organized okay and and in Quebec here we also had the added uh, you know dimension of a lot of people in senior residences like, like really suffering from the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and dying, and so it was very, very hectic for healthcare workers and and for me. Um, so my son and I talked on the phone every single day, and I said, I said, give me the update. What's going on in there? I want to know everything. How are you? What's going on? And so uh, the rest of March, March 19th to to April 1st, he said, don't worry about me, mom. It's okay. I'm not going to get sick. We were mostly worried that he would get COVID so we said, no worry. And he said, don't worry, mom, they're taking good care of us. You know, for Tyler, the hospital was a second home because he went there so often. The staff knew him inside out. You know, he was very well educated. He was very well spoken. He, he, uh, they loved him. He was the good patient. He was the good patient. He listened to them, okay? Mm-hmm. He was never aggressive or anything. He never had those symptoms, so, and then April, for, and then around that time, he met this woman in the hospital and he was very excited to meet somebody and, oh, wow, you know, and so I said, okay, good, uh, whatever. And, um, and then he got transferred to a unit out of emergency into a unit in April. And every day I kept talking to him. He didn't like the unit. He said it was, it was difficult, but he was holding on. And as we went through April, and uh, now I was saying, okay, this is going to be longer than I thought. I need to see him. I need to say, mom, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll see you. Don't. He was, he was reassuring me in all through April. So I felt comforted at, but I still felt like I couldn't see him. I could, I didn't know what was going on. So April went through and then I started to get nervous and his social worker started to say, you know, he, he puts on a good show, but I don't like the way he looks. It's not good. And then may he started to he started to change and he started to say, mom, I don't know, I don't like it here, When am I getting out? And my girlfriend is complaining because I'm not getting out and she'll be out. And all through May, we could see a deterioration and I started calling everybody. I called people I knew in the top of the hospital, everybody, and everyone was saying, we're working on it, we can't do anything, you have to understand. I said, yes, but he's, my son seems to be deteriorating, I don't like this, I can't see him. And in the, so he died June 25th. And so from June 1st to June 25th, it was really a serious deterioration. I could hear it on the telephone. He didn't sound well. And I I won't go into all the details here, okay? But um, that was very, very frightening for me. And I finally got permission to see him. I was finally allowed to go see him on June 26th. That was the date I was allowed to go see him. And on June 25th, I received the call.
0: That's heartbreaking, man. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I really feel bad for my son. I feel like, you know, he he tried to make it. He tried to wait it out because I was the one person who could sort of, I feel like I was the one person who could say to him, okay, you hold off on that. We're going to work on this. I'm going to take you here. We're going to do that. I was, I was the manager, you know? I was going to manage it. And he would just go along with it and say, okay, mom, you know, And he would, and so if he was in the hospital and he didn't like the way things were going on because he couldn't express himself, it was too difficult. He'd call me up and say, Mom, yeah, I don't know. I said, Well, tell me, tell me more. No, Mom, I don't want, you know, I don't want to get people in trouble. You're not going to get anybody in trouble. Just tell me, like, what's going on and everything. And I'd say, Okay, so this is what I want you to do. And I would give him instructions about his part, right? But then I would get off the phone and I'd call the nursing station and say, Okay, so here's the deal. And I said, and you go back to him and tell him that I talked to you, we're going to have another conversation about this. Okay? So don't, don't do that. We're just trying to solve a problem here. Because different people are different, right? Yeah. Some people have more self-confidence and, mm-hmm. and some people have less. And hey, it's okay. I understand all that. But uh, so
1: we worked as a team. We were a very good team. Miriam. Yes. I have a couple of questions for you. Um, okay. One is, what's it like being a caregiver after?
2: Oh, well, that's a good question. What's it like being a caregiver after somebody dies? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in my case, so my son died in the hospital, and I don't have the official report. And I I'm in so I'm in a holding space. I'm mm-hmm. in suspense. Mm-hmm. And I'm still caregiving. I'm still working on his case. Mm-hmm. I consulted many different people. I I've talked to different people. I've uh, I, I won't go into all the details, but mm-hmm. but still caregiving, and that's helpful for me mm-hmm. because it allows me time also to to grieve the loss at the same time as I feel I'm being productive.
1: It's and, almost like you know, yeah, sorry, the advocacy continues. Yeah, that you have been you know, that person, since your Tyler was in grade nine, and you have been everything, his um, manager, his coach, his cheerleader, his organizer, um, you know, his detective, his sleuther, you've been everything, and you continue to be everything, and he's not with us in body anymore but you are still working on his behalf to find answers and closure
2: yes I, i'm still working on his behalf and and i think he would have given me his permission to do that because um, you know he always wrote me the most beautiful mother's day birthday and, and christmas cards uh, telling me how much he, you know i went back to school and did my master's degree after my uh that undergrad degree and um I I used his case as the project of my research in for my master's degree and uh he with his permission and he and he he always told me in his cards how much he was proud of me and how he didn't have any he didn't have to worry about anything because because he knew that I was there for him and that and that you know and so not being there sin you know not have, being able to be there because we were barred from being there. In the end, I think he became very angry and he was confused about why I couldn't break through that barrier because I always broke through all those barriers, right? There was nothing to stop me and COVID stopped me and he couldn't understand that. COVID and the, and the system, the way they set it up. I later worked with the Healthcare Excellence Canada on, their poli- on developing their policy with a group of people to, uh, to, uh, for essential partners in care. So I continue to advocate, Sammy. As you say, I continue to work on my son's behalf. I think I'll always work on his behalf.
1: I, what I'm trying to do is find some comfort in this story that <gasps> maybe, maybe your sense of um, letting him down because you were always his superwoman and his savior, and that you feel you couldn't break through, and get, you know that COVID was for you the the concrete wall. Um, that's how you felt. Uh, But I'm not quite sure that's how Tyler would have felt. Uh, Tyler might have still seen all of your effort, even though you physically couldn't get to him, that you were still the same you, that you were still his superhero, trying with all your might and helping him to problem solve over the phone, which he was used to. So, you have a a profound feeling of um, sounds like, you know, failure or helplessness, um, guilt. uh, And all I, and all I hear is the opposite. Like when you tell your story, you are strong and brave and tenacious and assertive and, advocating, and there's nothing more you could have done. Uh, Like I said, this is a love story, and it's also a story of loss, but it is a story of great strength um, between both of you, both of you.
2: Yeah, for him, yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still feel that he's with me in many ways. Yeah, do you? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that uh, I was debating whether I should do this, uh, you know, do this uh, podcast. And um, so I think Tyler gave me his, uh, his uh, go ahead, because today's my birthday. So, so, and he always, he always did special things for me on my birthday. And I think the specialness of today is for him to say, it's okay, mom, Uh, you can talk about it because I, I haven't talked about it in public ever. So I've talked about it to my family, obviously. Uh, my family knows and a couple of friends, but, uh, you know, and we still have a long way to go because Tyler knows that there, Tyler knows even more probably now, if, if that's possible, that um, there are many more things to, uh, he, he always, he, he was always, um, uh, proud that I helped other families, he said, I'm so happy that you're helping other families and other people. No, he, he was my partner. He, he really, he had my back too, you know, uh, and uh, I had his back. And I think at the end of the day, uh, he saw that I was really struggling with trying to see him and that it was, it was hard on me and that my health was giving out. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he, he didn't want to impose that on me either. He wanted to try to do whatever he could to solve the problem.
1: Yeah. You know what? Honestly, I I could I I feel so emotional from your story because more often is a situation where there is quite a fractured relationship between the person who's suffering from schizophrenia and the family who's suffering from schizophrenia. And that is not your story. You have a story um, that is to be celebrated in so many ways, uh, Marianne. Your your relationship with Tyler was unreal given the circumstances and I know you see it as just normal and that's just the way you were but it is not what's common when it comes to this illness um we did love if, each other
2: very much we did, yeah we did. that he, he, he love
1: yeah. and that's the other gift the gift of having a close relationship with your mom when you have schizophrenia is just very uncommon um So, uh, you know, I want to thank you for taking the time on your very, very special birthday where Tyler has given you a sign to um, share your story, perseverance together as a team, the two of you through this, um, this very scary illness called schizophrenia um, with us on our podcast. I'm so touched by you. I hope you get um, some answers. You are still in the waiting room. I still, honestly, I see huge parallels. You talked about taking charge. You I talked about, um, you know, being in the dark. You talked about, you you talked about so much at being assertive, knowing your style. This is who yes. you are. You know, yes. you have no idea. Like you've just given up. Oh. A story of of the waiting room revolution from the perspective of someone dealing with a chronic and progressive waxing and waning primary mental health condition. And and you know, the big difference is, is that unlike the other physical illnesses we talk about, this is highly stigmatized. Honestly, you just gave the most powerful caregiver story. I hope maybe we can speak to you again in another Yeah, another time we, and we'll and follow up. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: yeah. Because I, I, I wish for you um, some peace. Thank you so much, Sammy. And thank you, Sian, yeah. for
2: inviting me. It's been a real pleasure to, to meet you, Sammy, and to see you once again, Sian. And I hope yeah. everything's going well for you and your family. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.